Welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media. We provide business professionals with insights and ideas for protecting their people from the vast array of threats facing organizations today. Each week, you'll hear advice and best practices from an experienced safety leader. Here's your host, Peter Steinfeld. Hey there. I hope you're having a great week. Today, we discuss how to demonstrate your team's value to your organization. On the one hand, safety and security leaders often struggle to get buy-in from leadership, and on the other hand, they're being asked to do more with less, especially in challenging economic times. So what can you do about it? Well, today's guest has some fantastic advice. John Robert is the Director of Global Intelligence and Protection at a major chemical, petrochemical, glass, and gases manufacturer. After 28 years working in government intelligence, John transitioned to the private sector, where he transformed the intelligence unit at his organization from a cost center to a value add. In this episode, John discusses how he proactively supports his company's many business units to deliver unquestionable value, no matter the market conditions. Let's get into the conversation. John, thanks so much for being here. It's really great to have you in the studio with me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my first time in a podcast studio, so definitely appreciate the invitation, and I'm happy to be here today chatting with you. I'd like to start by setting the scene for our audience. Can you paint a picture of the size and scope of your organizational operations? Sure. It's a large manufacturing organization, which produces about a billion dollars of product a day at some of the facilities and some of the largest plants in the world. So large, multinational, spread across different continents, many different countries. So truly a, a global multinational company with you know the size and scope you would expect from a large manufacturer like that. What's something that might surprise people about your role as Director of Global Intelligence and Protection? You know, a lot of people are surprised at the move among large companies, Fortune 100, Fortune 500, into the private intelligence space. And they're surprised to learn that some of these large companies have an intelligence capability at all. Our organization has a long history of industry-leading security practices and, and being on the forefront. And we have a global security operations center that's very mature, highly advanced, and operating at the high end of predictive intelligence, watch and warning, and those types of functions. You know, that's pretty fascinating. And it seems like, to your point, this is something that's been growing in recent years. Most organizations didn't have an intelligence function. And we've talked about how to build a security operations center from scratch before in the show, but can you walk us through the stages of growth for a security operations center? Sure. There are many different ways to look at it and many different models you could borrow from. But essentially, most SOCs, when they start out, are really focused on guns, gates, and guards mm. and cameras and you know remote opening and remote locking of things. After that, they tend to move into more of a dispatch and response mode and add those responsibilities. The third level, I would say, is where you're starting to see some of the nascent maybe intelligence functions come in. It may not be a major line of effort for the SOC at that point, but it's beginning to become a line of effort or a line of business. And then that fourth level is really on the higher end where they are functioning more as an intelligence center than as a dispatch type operation and may have even moved beyond those dispatch type responsibilities altogether. So it's sort of a continuum for most companies and you know it makes the job certainly interesting and it really is a place where you could understand the fusion concept of 
information, intelligence, and all the feeds that would come into the SOC and really begin to understand what's happening around the organization and what's happening that might pose potential risk to the organization. Why do you think that evolution has occurred to go from saying, hey, just worry about physical security, secure this building, that's it, to now, oh, the whole world, we need you to help us. What prompted that change? Was it the security teams pushing the organization, the organization pushing the security team, or a little bit of both? Yeah, I mean, I think it differs across the industry. Some of it could be initiative-type internal push. Some of it is driven by external events. There could be a situation where the organization has had an issue or an incident occur that sort of points the way toward a need for a broader scope and, and a broader look at the things that could be negatively impactful. And then in some cases, you have visionary leaders who look over the horizon and understand that especially a large multinational operating around the world needs to be able to see over the horizon and needs to be able to not only detect issues, but also accurately assess not just the issues themselves, but the potential impact on the organization, and then be able to respond or to support decision makers and risk owners in developing their responses to the things that you're seeing. So it seems like the security team and department and the intelligence function has transformed from one of being more of a cost center, something we just have to do, to more of a value add to the business. Is that what you're saying here? Absolutely. And certainly, you always want to take time to understand your organization, understand what it is that the organization does, how it does so, and really focus in on those business units and business areas so that you can understand the entire value chain and where you want to position yourself is as part of that value chain and supporting decision advantage for the value chain and the businesses that essentially are the reason the company exists. It's a profit-driven organization and you've really got to be part of the solution in that way. So figuring out how to identify needs and requirements of the business and align within existing strength areas and processes is really, in my view, one of the better ways to get to the value proposition where you're not viewed as simply another cost center. Yeah. So guns, gates, and guards is just table stakes. It's like, yeah, you have to do that stuff. But to really add value to the business, I think what you said is fantastic, which is just sit down and understand what does the business do? You have to really understand that as a security professional. And then knowing what you know about gathering intel, securing facilities, this is how you can add value to each one of those units within the business. Right. And it's a lot like gathering intelligence internally within your organization. Oh, I like the way you put that. Yeah. And then understanding how to plug in and understanding how the types of services an Intel center provides are cross-cutting across the entire organization. But I, I think there's a way that you can tailor them, as I was mentioning earlier, where you're actually working in tandem with existing processes and lines of effort that are generating value for the organization. And that's the sweet spot. That's where you want to be. So how do you go about doing that in a way that's non-threatening? Like sometimes people say, you don't know my business. <laughs> what are you doing coming in here and asking these questions? Right. I mean, like many things, it's, it's a function of building relationships, but it's also investing the time. You know, you've got to take the time to, to travel, to get tours of the shop floor, the lab or whatever it is, and really understand who's there, how they do business, how things operate, where things are located, 
and really understand not just the business operations, but the enablers like the supply chain element and, and other pieces that sort of support that entire production and value chain. And, you know, learning from the historical journey of the organization that you're a part of. So, for example, if you're part of the security organization, understanding the historical journey that they've already been on, where they've succeeded, where maybe they haven't succeeded, and really look for those opportunities to, you know, enhance the successes or see if there's opportunity, you know, to to tackle something that was already tried but didn't quite work previously. But at the end of the day, you really have to do your homework and and understand what worked, what didn't, and why. And when you look at it through your lens, are you seeing two lenses, one that's more security-focused and another one that's Intel-focused, or are they really united in your mind? In my mind, the height of the art is that they are united. So you have a fusion center concept where each of the constituent parts are feeding a common operating picture so that you can understand from the different lenses, the operating environment, and really leverage the strengths of each of those independent disciplines. So for me, that's that's really where you want to be. So where you could have security experts, intelligence analysts, and even analysts from the other organizations like supply chain or even public affairs, government affairs, and other outward-facing elements of the company, you can really leverage the diversity of talent and viewpoint across those different stakeholders. And if you bring that together in a fusion center-like way, it's very powerful. Absolutely. Well, in these economic times that we're in right now, I know that it's oftentimes difficult to gain buy-in from executives to invest in forward-looking intel and security and things like that. So how do you do it? Well, doing more with less is an ever-present pressure. It's just, even in great economic times, it's always the case that you've got to be a good steward of resources and you really have to assess vendors against the capability set that you're looking for. You have to have a very good idea of your requirements and the strategic outcomes you're seeking and really seek to get the best value but also the best capability to deliver those results. And this this is really one of the ways you can demonstrate your value proposition is that you are providing a service, but you're also being a very good steward of the resources given. So at the end of the day, you've got to present a compelling business case, but also a compelling value case in order to, to really thrive. And this is particularly important when you're in a situation where there's an economic downturn. And so there's a lot of downward pressure across a lot of areas of the organization. Yeah. What can we cut? What can we cut? You got to be able to defend what you've done and why you need to continue to invest here. How do you communicate that to executives? Do you involve them in the review of the solutions or do you wait, collect all your evidence and then make your presentation? What's the best approach to that? I mean, I'm not sure if what the what the best approach is, but one approach I've used is on the front end, gathering the requirements, I would say, and you, certainly you wouldn't categorize them to your executive team as requirements. What you're really doing is looking for the strategic outcomes that that executive team and the board are seeking. And then you look at how you can enable those strategic outcomes and enable the parts of the organization who are charged to actually deliver those results. And where you find areas where you might be able to support, then you can engage and really start to to bring value to the businesses and to the other pieces of the organization 
in ways that maybe they hadn't thought of, or frankly, maybe you hadn't thought of before. But a magical thing happens when you start to collaborate in that way around a shared common goal. And everyone understands that everyone's on the team. You approach it in a collaborative, cross-functional way. And I think importantly, where some organizations maybe go astray in this area is around the notion of who owns it. And I think the quote, it's amazing what we can accomplish if no one cares who gets the credit, is a wonderful quote, but it's a wonderful way to look at this and really understand how you can add value when you adopt that mantra and really start to work in a cross-functional team sort of way so that everyone's free to bring their talents and their viewpoints to, to bear on the issue at hand. But it, it's amazing and a force multiplier because you don't need to own it. You don't have to control it. You just contribute from your lens. Mm. And the power of everyone doing that in a collaborative way and the illumination that generally occurs around thorny issues really helps to move the entire team forward. Yeah, it seems like the attitude has to change. You know, you're in security and you don't go to people and say, you need to do this because I have this badge and you have to do it. Right. It's, hey, you should do this because it's going to result in a reduction in theft of 10% or whatever that end result they're looking for sure. that helps their mission and their role that they have. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing to do is upfront look for ways that you may be able to contribute to solving someone else's problem. Mm and really lean in on helping to the extent that you can. And that really builds not just the collaborative relationship, but it builds trust. And trust is the currency of the realm in this space. Do you see when you take that approach to people, even the thorniest individuals will suddenly bloom and the rose will come out and they'll be like, okay, now I get it. And then they, they open their world to you and say, hey, yeah, come in and help me out now. It happens and it's wonderful when it does. It's not always the case, yeah. you know, and, and some take longer than others. But generally speaking, if everyone is coming to the table from pure motivation and you're really trying to be a part of the solution, it's difficult to turn that away regardless of what kind of stakeholders you're dealing with. So looking for the win-wins is a really important first step in trying to, to build out the organizational level trust that is required ultimately for the long haul. And I can imagine as times get tough or there's that downward pressure to cut costs, if you just went for the win to get the solution you wanted as a security professional, that gets cut pretty easily. But to your point, if it was a win-win in the business demonstrated the benefit of the security effort, nobody wants to cut that. Right, exactly. And so the sort of compounding effect there is that you come to be viewed as an indispensable part of many different teams across the organization. And in some cases, a team like this will become synonymous with a critical function like crisis management. You know, And you'll have senior executives championing your organization because when they think crisis management, they think the intelligence team and they think that's the critical component there. So it really compounds the benefits when you approach it in this way. Now, your background, you spent many years on the government side. Correct. Working in the commercial side is much different. So as you think about that transition, could you talk a little bit more about that? Does the lens you brought from the government side influence how you think about things on the commercial side? It does. But for me, it has not been a difficult transition at all. But I think a large part of that is being open to new perspectives, new ideas, looking at things from a little different lens. 
And the technical aspects of the job might be very similar to what I did in the intelligence community for 28 years. But, you know, the profit motive, the way corporations operate and every one of them is different and just learning how it's done in that organization is particularly important. And you've got to be open to it. You can't fall victim to that's not the way we did it in the government, mm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I've seen people kind of fall in their face in that regard and they have a difficult time, you know, making the transition and building the trust that we were just talking about. It's hard to build trust if you're telling someone they're doing it wrong and that's not the way you're used to doing it. You're just kind of going down a really unproductive road and doing something that way. So I think, you know, open communication, understanding the organization, and it it's fine to point out different ways of looking at a problem or different ways of addressing the problem, but you've got to understand the organizational culture and be astute enough to realize that you are not going to come into a private sector organization from the government and be a change agent. And quite frankly, if your proposition was, I want to make this place look like how the U.S. government operates, you're, <laughs> you're fighting a losing battle from the outset there. I don't think anyone would, would agree that that's the best approach. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I've spoken to folks on the podcast before that made that transition, and they said it was difficult because when I was with the military or when I was with the police, the primary product we produced was safety. That was it. It was our mission. Everything was around safety, safety, safety. We didn't produce anything else. I go to the private sector, we produce widgets or whatever it is. That's our primary mission. Now, we need to do it safely, and we need people who understand safety and security to make sure we can continue to produce those widgets, but it's the widget that's the primary mission, not the safety in and of itself. And that's really hard for people to understand when they're making that transition. It can be challenging because the most efficient or the most effective way of addressing a problem, at least in one's experience from government, may not be advisable or even possible in the private sector because of what you're describing there. So I guess the best way I would put it is understand the mission of the organization and understand that intelligence and security are always a supporting function to the primary mission. For transitioning veterans or government employees, if they can think of it that way, then it makes sense within the framework that they're used to and can help probably ease some of those transition pain points. Do you have any advice for people that are new to the intel industry or the security industry? What would you recommend to them? Well, I would recommend that they communicate early and often, learn from everyone around them everything that they can. But one of the things that I've been pleasantly surprised about and found very valuable is industry organizations. So there are security and intelligence organizations across industry, as is ASIS, ATAP, ATAP, and other organizations like that exist to help professionalize this industry to provide continuing education opportunities and training and really to support exactly the type of folks who are transitioning into this space and the corporate side. So I found them tremendously valuable. They offer a lot of training and services for free. They're also obviously paid services. Most of them have annual or uh, biannual conferences. And so you can make a lot of good contacts and a lot of good professional relationships at those types of industry conferences. And then you can lean on that professional network when you're having a question, an issue, a problem, or, or can't really figure out which way to go with something. You can always reach out to that professional network. And I have found that immensely valuable. And it really shortens the time and flattens the learning curve when you, when you make that transition. 
the industry organizations provide benchmarking and many of them write standards that are meant to be to serve as you know industry level standards for how to do some of these different functions you would find in a SOC or an intelligence team. Not only are they very valuable from a benchmarking sort of how this should be done standpoint because you have an authoritative source to rely on for how you're doing what you're doing and why you're doing it that way. But one of the things they also do, and and I would advise anyone in a similar role to do, is to use industry benchmarking, particularly outside of your sector. You could do it within your sector, but what I found most compelling and that the C-suite tends to react to most is benchmarking outside of your industry where another company of similar size and disposition is solving the problem that you're trying to solve or how they how they did that, what the result was, the path they traveled down, and being able to bring back those results. And it doesn't take much. You could do three or four companies and do the benchmarking with your counterpart in that organization and really draw some valuable lessons learned from that that present a very compelling case to your executive team for why you need to do something or why we need to do it a particular way. And it really begins to provide that evidence-based conclusion that you can lean on and point to for gaining traction around the initiatives and the the ideas that you're trying to sell as essentially to your C-suite. Yeah, I mean, it can reinforce the ROI, I think, tremendously if you're doing benchmarking and there's something you're not doing today and then three, four, five other organizations are. It makes the executives say, wait a minute, <laughs> why are we not doing these things? Yeah. Well, what are we missing here? And that's that's very powerful. And don't forget, you know, your executives have their networks as well. And so if you were to do benchmarking with another company uh, in a different sector, I would expect someone on that executive team has a contact in that organization and they're going to reach out and validate your findings. So Yeah, back channel it. So that, that really lends support and credibility to the work that you've already done, the heavy lifting you've already done on the front end when you undertake benchmarking in this way. It's a chess game. It can be. It can be. (laughs) Well, as we wrap up, do you have any stories you can share where you were able to demonstrate the value you bring to your organization where intelligence made a big impact? There have been instances, certainly, where the team has been able to provide information that that really made a difference in corporate decision-making. And this is not just from a risk management perspective, but also from a business perspective. So being able to provide information which helps to illuminate a situation or providing predictive intelligence, which would highlight either an emerging situation or the potential for an impact on the organization is really the sweet spot there. That's where you want to be. So we've done things like provided a heads up on different weather events, environmental type impacts and things that would be negatively impactful to the company if we didn't plan for contingencies in that space and really being able to not just understand the environment, but also support action plans, support decision-making, support contingency development is really part of the, the value that you bring to the table. And, you know, companies who have a large global footprint, a diverse supply chain, I mean, all of these companies are suffering with the supply chain disruptions that started with COVID and have continued for various other geopolitical reasons. And so supporting teams like that with alternative modes of transport, with understanding factors which could have a bearing on their ability to deliver 
product, deliver, you know, resources, deliver or receive those things that go into the manufacturing process is really a place where teams like this can add a significant amount of value. And it seems to me like it's more important than ever. 20, 30 years ago plus, it was, oh, we'll make our projections on what we're going to produce a year out. We'll talk about deliveries six months out. But everything's shrunk with this just-in-time inventory concept. So something bad impacts you and you've got a six, 12-month cushion, you can adjust. But when you've got a hours or a few days or weeks cushion, you don't have time to adjust. So it makes Intel even more important. Absolutely. And having the ability to do that predictive analysis that supports not just the just-in-time piece, but also the alternatives, the you know, development of alternatives is really a critical capability to have today. And so you combine potential supply chain disruptions with inventory control and just-in-time delivery sorts of rubric with something like global decoupling of the supply chain in key places. And it really starts to show you the value of having good insights in this area and not just knowing clearly what happened, but being able to accurately project what's most likely to occur and what would be the most dangerous thing that could happen and being able to provide that information to the risk owners and the decision makers who have to actually make the decisions or make the changes required in order to, to avoid those potential negative consequences. Well, John, thanks so much for joining me today in the studio. Really great to have you here. I learned a lot, and I think your concept of making it a team approach, getting out and seeing the world to the eyes of the people you're trying to protect and serve can make a win-win situation that's just better for the organization overall and can improve your ROI when you're going to ask for budget. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Thank you very much for having me. It's very enjoyable, and I appreciate the time today. Excellent. Well, if you want to learn more about John and his work, check the links in the show notes. And we'll be back next week with more insights and ideas to keep your people safe. To get that episode sent straight to your inbox, click the link in the show notes to subscribe at alertmedia.com. Thanks for listening. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. To learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time.